Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Today we're talking about a case from 1962 that remains open and under investigation by the U.S. Marshals Service. It involves some other brothers in crime and is so infamous, there's a movie about it starring Clint Eastwood. This might not be the sort of thing you'd expect to hear about in your typical murder pod. But when have we been typical? Today, we're talking about the escape from Alcatraz. In the heart of San Francisco Bay, a former prison fortress sits perched atop Alcatraz Island as a reminder of America's more lawless past. It wasn't just a prison. It has a rich history. It began as the West Coast's first lighthouse, constructed in 1854, and served as a navigational aid for over 50 years. Later, the island would be transformed into a Civil War fortress and a military prison, later becoming the institution most people think of when they hear the word Alcatraz. Today, the word Alcatraz is synonymous with the infamous federal prison that it became, which is truly what stands out from the island's rich history. The name Alcatraz might make us think of the pen now, but it's name derived from the Spanish Alcatraces. In 1775, the Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Ayala was the first to sail into what is now known as San Francisco Bay. His expedition mapped the bay and named one of the three islands Alcatraces. Over time, the name was bastardized, or white peopleified to Alcatraz. While the exact meaning still kind of in debate, Alcatraz is generally accepted as meaning pelican or strange bird, so just call me Alcatraz. (laughs) Okay, Alcatraz. In 1850, a presidential order set aside the island for possible use as a United States military reservation. The California gold rush and the resulting boom and growth of San Francisco and the surrounding area Uh, and the need to protect the San Francisco Bay led the U.S. Army to build a citadel or fortress at the top of the island in the early 1850s. The Army also made plans to install more than 100 cannons on the island, making Alcatraz the most heavily fortified military site on the entire West Coast. Together with Fort Point and Lime Point, Alcatraz formed a triangle of defense designed to protect the entrance to the bay. By the late 1850s, the first military prisoners were being housed on the island. While the defensive necessity of Alcatraz diminished over time, the island never actually fired its guns in battle, its role as a prison would continue for more than a hundred years. In 1909, the army tore down the citadel, leaving its basement level to serve as the foundation for a new military prison. From 1909 through 1911, the military prisoners on Alcatraz built the new prison, which was designated the Pacific Branch U.S. Disciplinary Barracks for the United States Army. It was this prison building that later became famous as The Rock. Now, the U.S. Army used the island for more than 80 years, from 1850 until 1933, when the island was transferred to the U.S. Department of Justice for use by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The federal government had decided to open a maximum security, minimum privilege penitentiary to deal with the most incorrigible inmates in federal prisons and to show the law-abiding public that the federal government was serious about stopping the rampant crime of the 1920s and 30s. Well, gee, a serious way to stop that would be by, I don't know, stopping that prohibition nonsense and not getting us into the Great Depression, but I digress. So, yeah, they wanted to stop people like that bag of shit Lester we talked about in episode 12, better known as Babyface Nelson. He's still responsible for killing more FBI agents than anyone else in history. Guys like that, that's who they were looking to put in this this joint. Exactly. So in response to all that roaring 20s, 
debauchery or maybe the lulls that were formed to try to prevent it, as Bob suggested. Uh, in the end of Prohibition, through the depths of the Great Depression, Alcatraz Federal Prison opened its doors on the island's former army post in 1934. It was truly intended to be the place to house the worst of the worst, keeping them cut off from the rest of the world. Between 1934 and 1963, only the most hardened criminals found themselves on The Rock, a nickname for the prison. And the 1996 Michael Ray movie starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Well, back to real life, notorious figures actually housed at Alcatraz included Al Capone, George Machine Gun Kelly, James Whitey Bulger, and Robert Stroud, better known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. As you can imagine, the worst of the worst criminals had little to lose and didn't particularly care to be locked up on an island. So, over the years, 36 men attempted 14 separate escapes. Can we just clarify that when we're saying Machine Gun Kelly, we're not talking about that weird little rap dude that thinks he's better than Eminem? You mean Megan Fox's boyfriend? Whatever. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but this episode isn't about that, and it is not about a bunch of escapes. It's about one escape, the escape. That's right. On a fateful night in 1962, three men dared to defy the insurmountable odds to escape the prison that was supposed to be inescapable. For over half a century, people have asked the question, did they pull it off? About these guys, I like Frank. Let's start with him. Frank it is. Frank Morris was born in Washington, D.C. and had a knack for finding trouble from a young age. He was orphaned at only 11 and spent his formative years in foster homes. By his late teens, Frank had already built a rap sheet ranging from narcotics possession to armed robbery. But it wasn't just his criminal record that stood out. Frank had a high IQ. In fact, with a score of 133, he was considered in the top 2% of the general population. What I'm hearing you say is that Frank was no stranger to solving difficult puzzles or figuring shit out. Right. Like after Frank was convicted of bank robbery and sent to the Louisiana State Penitentiary for a 10-year stint, he managed to escape the pen. But he wasn't out for too long because he got caught for committing another burglary again in 1960. And this time, Frank was sentenced to serve 14 years at Alcatraz. But Frank isn't the only one involved in this escape. Let's talk about the other brothers in crime. The Anglin brothers, John and Clarence, grew up in a family of 14 children in Donaldsonville, Georgia. In the early 1940s, the family moved to Ruskin, Florida, 20 miles south of Tampa, where the farms and tomato fields provided a more reliable source of income. Still, they would move north as far as Michigan every June to pick cherries. Clarence and John were reportedly inseparable as youngsters. And growing up less than 10 miles away from the Chattahoochee River and then alongside Tampa Bay, it's unsurprising that there are stories of John and Clarence being skilled swimmers. But these boys were allegedly not only capable of swimming in the idyllic settings, bro these brothers reportedly enjoyed swimming even in the icy waters of Lake Michigan. Uh, siblings have told stories about them breaking the ice to go for freezing swims while the ice floated around them. Oh, no, 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 no. No, that's, uh, are you kidding me? That's outrageous. I mean, that's the kind of cold water that makes your manhood shrink up inside you and pop out your butthole. Nobody wants to do that. You're supposed to read this next. You gotta yeah. keep going. I'm gonna compose. Oh, I get how oh, that gosh. could come into play later. In case you're going through crime withdrawal, I've got your fix. The Anglin boys started criminal careers early. Clarence's first run in with the law at just 14, he was caught breaking into a service station. By the early 50s, both brothers regularly robbed banks and other establishments, usually when they were closed. 
The brothers later claimed that the only weapon they ever used was a toy gun during a bank robbery. Those toy guns didn't get you shot and killed back in the day. Hmm. I mean, so they're kind of like uh, gentlemen robbers. That's the impression I get, right? Yeah. Now, on January 17th, 1958, the Anglins, along with their older brother, Alfred, stormed into Alabama's Bank of Columbia. The men wielded a plastic firearm to scare employees and exited with over $18,000, the equivalent of about 174000 today. For the Anglin brothers, three of 14 children who grew up in poverty-stricken areas of Georgia and Florida, this was a life-changing amount of cash. Not that they had much time to do anything with that money, because the Anglins were caught and arrested just five days later in Ohio, and all three went to prison. They were given 15- to 20-year sentences and sent to the Atlanta Penitentiary. You got any idea who they met while they were there? I don't know. I heard something about Alan West. Wasn't that Batman? <laughs> well, that's where... The Anglin brothers first met Frank Lee Morris and another man, as you just mentioned, named Alan West, but not Batman. Brother Alfred remained in the federal prison in Atlanta until he was later transferred to Kilby State Prison in Montgomery to begin serving his Alabama sentence for the Columbia bank robbery. That's way too many places, but you get the idea. Unfortunately, Alfred died January 11, 1964. In case you're wondering how, it was during an escape attempt from Kilby. Uh, sadly, he came in contact with a high-voltage electric wire while he was attempting to escape and was electrocuted to death. Ooh, damn, fried Alfred. Meanwhile, Clarence and John were sent to the Florida State Prison and then to Leavenworth in Kansas. The pair tried to escape from Leavenworth. Yeah, they were really determined not to be in prison. And that resulted in them getting sent to Alcatraz, with John arriving on October 21st, 1960, and Clarence arriving January 10th, 1961. Within a year, they began to plan an elaborate escape attempt with Frank Morris and Alan West. So this Alan West guy that you keep talking about, it's not the guy that was Batman? Yeah, unfortunately, we're not we're not talking about Batman. Uh, there's not a whole lot of information out there on Alan, so, you know, I don't know, maybe he is Batman. We don't really need to get into his backstory a whole lot, but uh, for those who are interested, he was born March 25th, 1929 in New York City. Coming from the Big Apple, he was arrested over 20 times throughout the course of his life. He did a stint for car theft in 1955, first at the Atlanta Penitentiary, and that was where he met the Anglins, and then later at the Florida State Prison. He, like everyone in this story, attempted to escape from prison. He tried to uh, excuse himself from the Florida facility, which resulted in his transfer to Alcatraz in 1957 at the age of 28. Well, if he's Batman, he should have had no problem with that, but I just looked it up, and that was Adam West was Batman. Ah, well, you know, you're getting old. It's okay. Adam Allen, I was close. Right, same thing, whatever. It should come as no surprise to anyone that these four dudes, who all have previously attempted to escape from prison with varying levels of success, would come together and hatch a plan to leave the Rock. They would put their plan into action in June of 1962. The group had begun planning the previous December when one of them came across some old saw blades. Using crude tools, including spoons and a homemade drill made from the motor of a broken vacuum cleaner, the men each loosened the air vents at the back of their cells by painstakingly drilling closely spaced holes around the cover so the entire section of the wall could be removed. Spoons and a vacuum motor. This is some MacGyver stuff right here. So if you think about how you hold a spoon, imagine if you got rid of that part that you used to dig into your food with. So now there's just sort of the handle and it tapers down to a kind of a skinny point at the end. Well, they fashion that into a, a real point, like an actual pointy point, And voila, you have something that when you attach it to a motor, can poke a hole in the wall. 
It won't cut quite like a saw would, but that's why they had to make so many holes and just put them really close together. It'd be kind of like using a drill bit uh, and using that to cut out a hole by drilling your drill bit in just right next to each other so many times in a shape like a square, and then you could remove that uh, portion of the wall. All right, I mean, that makes sense, but I'm thinking like a, a 1960s prison issue vacuum. Wouldn't that have been loud enough to wake the dead in that place? <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't quiet. But these guys seem to think of everything. I mean, remember, Frank's a genius, right? They knew they couldn't be jackhammering in their cells with the spoon drill without alerting somebody. So what they did is they created this housing to go around their contraption, and that kind of helped to quiet the noise. But remember how Frank's a genius, right? He also just happens to play the accordion. And maybe his evening accordion practice just happened to mask the noise of their work. So once the guys could remove the entire air vent, they hid the holes with readily available items in each of their cells, like a suitcase, a piece of cardboard, a towel, whatever. Well, that's handy, but where did these holes lead to? Now, this is what's fascinating to me, because behind the cells, there's a common unguarded utility corridor. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's just how the prison was laid out. And they didn't have uh, ring cameras in that corridor. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. So the men would make their way down this corridor and climb to the roof of their cell block, but still inside the building. So they're kind of on the roof, but in, in an inner roof, if that makes sense. Here they would set up a secret workshop in this dead space between the roof of their block and the rest of the building above. This became the place where they would sneak off to manufacture whatever they needed for their escape. Obviously, they couldn't all just sneak off to the workshop at the same time. So they took turns keeping watch for the guards in the evening before the last count. They even constructed this crude periscope to assist them in their lookout duties. And they didn't always have to sneak around to work on their projects. They had managed to convince the guards to let them clean and paint a landing area in this utility space. So they would do just enough to make it seem like they were working, uh, but then they would kind of hide back in an area where they couldn't be seen, spending most of their time building a raft. Uh, and they used a variety of stolen and donated materials to build everything that they thought they would need for their escape plan. The men used more than 50 raincoats, these you know, kind of, if you imagine, 1960s PVC rubber type raincoats. Um, and they stole these or they would gather them together to make life preservers and a 6 foot by 14 foot rubber raft. The seams they had carefully stitched together and they even vulcanized. Wait, Vulcan? You talking about the Roman god of fire? Was he trying to get up out of Alcatraz too? <laughs> no. A vulcanization is a process where traditionally rubber was heated with sulfur and it causes the structures to become cross-linked polymers. Basically, it's a way to make the rubber a lot stronger. So these guys were up in their workshop vulcanizing their rubber raft by heating it against uh, the hot steam pipes in the prison. They apparently got the idea from magazines that were later found in their cells. They also built wooden paddles and according to the FBI, the men converted a musical instrument into a tool they could use to inflate the raft. At the same time, they were looking for a way out of the building. The ceiling was a good 30 feet high, but using a network of pipes, they were able to climb up and eventually pried open a ventilator at the top of the shaft. They kept it in place temporarily by creating this fake bolt that they made out of soap so that it looked like the bolt was there, but really it was this soap that could easily be, you know, just knocked out and they could get out when it was time to, uh, to escape. The crew even created realistic-looking dummy heads. These were made to look like each of the men, complete with hair and fairly convincing given the limited resources they had. Yeah, these look like something you'd see a fourth grader make as a, you know, self-portrait in the mixed media materials category for the school art fair. But these dummies, the fake heads, 
didn't need to be perfect. They, they planned to leave these in their beds on the night when they would make the break. And so they just needed them to be good enough to deceive the guards during bed checks. You know, it's dimly lit, whatever. They didn't really have to be perfect. They just needed to be quick glance proof. So sometime late on the evening of June 11th or in the early morning hours of June 12th in 1962, three of the four men made a break for it. Remember earlier I said Alan West wasn't as important to this story? Well, that's because he was unable to leave his cell in time. As Frank and the Anglin brothers made their break, West was still stuck in his cell. Well, I guess they didn't believe in no man left behind then. Nope. This was every man for himself. Oh, damn. So you mean he missed the boat? You could say that. All that remained of Frank and the Anglin brothers was their look-alike dummy heads made of cotton sheets, soap, paint, and human hair. The routine early morning bed check turned out to be anything but routine. The night before, Bill Long, the lieutenant in charge of the cell block during the midnight to morning shift, had uh, what seemed like an uneventful night. He didn't hear any unusual noises. However, there were a few peculiar incidents during the preceding shift. Another lieutenant reported hearing a loud bang, which he said sounded kind of like a hubcap rolling on the floor. One of the officers reported hearing what sounded like footsteps from above. Despite these reports, nothing substantial came out of it until Long initiated the morning headcount. During the headcount, it became evident that one inmate on B1, this particular cell block, was unaccounted for. Long went to check on the missing inmate. As he called out to the inmate to rise for the count, he discovered the deception, and the dummy head rolled to the floor, actually breaking the nose, and if you look at pictures, you can see that today. Long was startled by the sight. I imagine, you know, a head rolling on a floor, and you're probably confused and whatever. Uh, he immediately raised the alarm. This prompted a comprehensive manhunt. Jolene Babiak, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, the warden's daughter at the time, was 15 years old the night of the 1962 escape, and the siren woke her up as she slept in bed in the officer's quarters. Her father was called about the escape, and then he opened the safe. Inside were plans for what to do in the case of an escape attempt. In more recent interviews, she said that her dad put the whole thing into motion, called Washington, D.C., alerted the newspapers, and they used to say at that time this was the biggest manhunt since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Boats would scour the bay and the open ocean, officers searched every corner of the island, and local law enforcement agencies for miles around joined the hunt. But despite their efforts, Frank Morse, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin were never seen again. At least there weren't any confirmed sightings. As the days went by, the FBI, the Coast Guard, Bureau of Prison Authorities, and others began to find more evidence and piece together the ingenious escape plan. Investigators also received help from Alan West, who'd never made it out of his cell, as he provided investigators with information too. Investigators found the holes in the cells and quickly discovered what had taken place. Frank and the Anglin brothers had gotten into the corridor, gathered their gear from their secret workshop, climbed up a series of pipes to make their way to the roof, where they could climb out through that ventilator with the fake bolt made of soap. This put them on top of the prison roof. From there, they shimmied down a vent pipe quite a distance. I've read that it was approximately 50 feet. This was at the rear of the cell house. Then they had to climb over two 12-foot barbed wire fences and sneak to the northeast shore of the island where, without being spotted where they would eventually launch their raft. So where did they go from there? They get in the boat, they're in their raft, they're off on the water. I would assume they got to shore somewhere. Did they just like go chill at a Taco Bell or did they make a pilgrimage for however many, six, seven years till they got to Woodstock or where'd these guys turn up? Well, interestingly enough, what happened next remains a mystery all these years later. They had a plan. It was to get across the bay to an island, another island called Angel Island. 
and then cross, I'm not making this up, Raccoon Strait into Marin County. Did they make it or did the wind and the waves get the better of them? Well, the water there in the bay is known to be rough. This added to the rock's inescapable lore. Even if you could escape the walls and the fences, the water was so challenging, you'd never make it. Plenty of people have gone to great lengths to prove that the trio could have survived, but the question really remains, right? Did they? Could they have made it across the bay? Yeah, probably. People have made the more than mile-long swim from Alcatraz to Angel Island, where the trio supposedly planned to go, but with the strong currents and frigid bay water, it wouldn't have been easy. The odds were definitely stacked against these men. The plan, according to West, remember who didn't make it out of his cell, was to steal clothes and a car once the escapees were back on land. But according to the FBI, who initially investigated the case, investigators never found any corresponding thefts despite the high-profile nature of the case and intense search for the men. If the escapees had outside help, law enforcement couldn't find any evidence of it. The families of these guys appeared unlikely to even have the financial means to provide any real support, even if they had wanted to. Yeah, the Anglin brothers' parents had like a dozen other kids, and they were a modest farming family back in Florida. And that situation doesn't seem like a scream financiers to a breaking out of the notoriously inescapable prison from the other end of the country or anything. Now, according to the FBI, over the many years that it worked on the case, there was no credible evidence to suggest that these men were still alive, either in the United States or anywhere else. The FBI officially closed its case on December 31st, 1979, and turned over responsibility to the U.S. Marshal Service, which continues to investigate the case to this day. The Marshals have committed to an unwavering pursuit of Frank Morris and Clarence and John Anglin until their status is conclusively determined as deceased or living. So is there any evidence that the men survived? Mike Dyke of the U.S. Marshal Service has previously told CBS News that a raft and paddle were possibly recovered on Angel Island, where the men were supposed to be heading, with footsteps leading away from these objects. Dyke also told the Times that a car was stolen in Marin County the night by three men who later nearly ran another car off the road in the Central Valley. But earlier you said there were no thefts. Ah, I said that the FBI said there were no thefts. But the marshals must have found some evidence that maybe the FBI missed. Certainly the conflicting reports and overall lack of definitive evidence, including the fact that no bodies have ever been recovered, makes you wonder what the heck happened out there. Shortly after the escape in 1963, Alcatraz was shut down. Uh, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the decision to close the facility was made long before Frank and the Anglin brothers broke out and disappeared. The decision to close down the prison was simple. It was just too expensive to continue operating. It didn't make financial sense. Even though they stopped operating Alcatraz as a prison, that hasn't stopped people from trying to figure out the fate of Frank John Clarence. Did they make it to Angel Island? Were they able to steal a car, find clothes, and slip away into obscurity despite every federal law enforcement agency in the area looking for them? Or were the strong currents and bridged waters of San Francisco Bay too much for the men to survive? That's the million-dollar question. And from the popular TV show Mythbusters to researchers in the Netherlands, people want to answer these questions. The Mythbusters crew concluded that it was plausible the escapees survived. In case you've never seen the show, it's worth noting that they tried to recreate everything as close to what it would have been for Frank and the Anglins back in 1962 as possible. Dutch researchers Rolf Hutt and Oliver Hose created a simulation of the tides and currents in the bay from that night in 1962, and they found that the trio could have made it to shore, but only if they got the timing just right. Using their computer simulation, they released virtual boats every half hour between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. from various launching points on the island. 
What they learned was that if the trio had departed between 11 p.m. and midnight, they could have made it to the north end of the Golden Gate Bridge and hit landfall with some vigorous paddling. Now, what's most interesting about that conclusion is that their simulation had the trio making landfall at the basically the exact same spot where the Mythbusters crew landed when they actually performed their test, right? So they literally made a raft and flotation device, all that stuff, out of the same kind of materials that would have been used by these guys back in 1962. They got in the water, they waited till the tides were similar, and they launched it, and they ended up the same place this computer simulation said that they would end up. However, if the guys had left the rock earlier than 11 p.m., the current likely would have swept them under the bridge and out into the open ocean. If they left after midnight, uh, the simulation had them getting swept into the bay, where they likely would have been trapped and just died from hypothermia from being in the water too long. How cold was the water in that bay in uh, June in 62? It would have been between 50 and 55 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, you know, I mean, that's uh, probably 25 degrees colder than any water I like to be in. Well, I mean, that's uh, better than this icy lake that they were used to swimming in when they were kids. But really, it that depends on how much time you're going to spend in that water. Because you can even, even 80 degree water, you can end up becoming hypothermic if you're in it long enough, the way water dissipates heat from your body that is really kind of finicky about wanting to stay at that 98 range Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a really good point. Something else to keep in mind is maybe they found another vessel other than the vulcanized raincoat raft to get off the island. Dan Noyes at ABC has reported that an eyewitness said the escapees may have been picked up by a white boat sitting in the bay off of Alcatraz that night. Who really knows what happened? It's worth mentioning that the Anglin family also alleges that John and Clarence made it off the island alive, and they believe that the men ended up in Brazil. The U.S. Marshal Service is still actively pursuing the case, and U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke, who I mentioned earlier, said leads still come in, and I, I just got one a couple weeks ago. Going through these various leads that he received recently and that he's talked about, Dyke said, Here's one that says they were in a small town in Alabama living on the farm. Here's one saying they came to her house when she was a little girl and says her father told her as a child that Clarence Anglin used to come to her house regularly. Even Marshall Dyke has acknowledged that it's hard not to root for the bad guys in this case just a little bit to wonder if maybe Frank and the Anglin brothers found their way to freedom. Even so, Dyke has a job to do, and has also said, There's an active warrant, and the marshal Service doesn't give up looking for people. In this case, this would be like saying, Well, yeah, they're probably dead. We're going to quit looking. Well, there's no proof they're dead, so we're not going to quit looking. My personal theory on this is that they are in Brazil with Tupac, Elvis, and Jimmy Hoffa. Is that Marshall Dyke speaking, or uh, Bob the... Oh, no, that's Bob's theory, is that they're in Brazil with Tupac and Elvis and Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, well, I guess anything is possible. Now, proof of death is the one thing that has local police, the Coast Guard, the Bureau of Prisons, the FBI, and the United States Marshals left puzzled about this case for almost 50 years. Apparently, the majority of bodies that drown in the San Francisco Bay float to the top after just a few days. But in this case, no body has ever surfaced. No remains have been found that match the Anglins after all these years of searching. Ooh, it's as if they just vanished. That's what everybody thought, until a twist surfaced about ten years ago. The History Channel put together a documentary on the escape, and two of the Anglin brothers' nephews came forward with bombshell evidence. A photo of John and Clarence that was allegedly taken in Brazil in 1975, or at least that's what they were saying. The photo shows two men with a striking resemblance to the Anglin brothers standing next to a rock by the side of a road, was supposedly taken by a friend of the family, Fred Brizzy, who grew up with the Anglin brothers in Florida. 
Brizzy told the nephews that he bumped into John in a bar in Rio de Janeiro. The brothers then invited Brizzy to a farm they said they owned and asked him to take some pictures of their new surrounding. The nephews believed their uncles wanted Brizzy to take the photos and give them to the Anglin family as a way to reassure them that the brothers were alive and well. And for whatever reason, Brizzy didn't deliver the photos to the Anglin family until 1992. But in addition to the photos, the nephews turned over a bundle of evidence, including Christmas cards the brothers allegedly sent to the Anglins family home in Florida for three years after the escape occurred. Why are these nephews so interested in proving that these guys are still alive? Don't they know how to keep their mouth shut? <laughs> That's a really good point. They kind of talk about this idea of like, well, their family and closure and, and that kind of thing. But it was interesting to me that, you know, that is kind of a weird position to be in, right? Like you, you, I could see maybe making a trip down to Brazil to try to find them, but it did seem a little bit like you're kind of out in your fam there. So Yeah, my take on this is that these guys did a little bit of robbery and today's equivalent to 174000 but it doesn't sound like they hurt anybody. And good grief, at this point, it's been 60 couple years. These dudes have to be at least 80 at this point. I'm not sure why we're wasting any more resources at this point hunting for people that if they didn't die in that water, and I'm not saying they did, by now they should have died of natural causes. And there's a lot bigger, a lot, lot bigger fish to fry yeah it certainly does seem kind of interesting that that so much uh time energy money resources have went into this case th this far down the road it is strange but kind of turning back to this picture that picture was looked over by a forensic examiner in the history channel documentary covering the escape and the expert's name was michael street he analyzed the facial structures and compared them to two known images of the convicts he presented his findings to the u.s marshal who prior to his retirement had been in charge of the investigation for this case for 20 years during its half-century history, talking about those resources that seem like maybe we're wasting. And the marshal told the Anglin family that it was very likely the two men in the picture are John and Clarence Anglin. Now, Brizzy, this family friend, he's no stranger to crime either. This is where the story gets even more interesting. Brizzy smuggled drugs from South America to Central Florida in the 70s. Initially, the U.S. marshals completely discredited and doubted Brizzy's account because of his criminal background. But when the nephews came forward with all of this potential evidence, they added credit to his incredible story by letting investigators listen to a recording they had of Brizzy explaining how the Anglins escaped. Brizzy recalled a story about how he uh, went with the Anglin brothers down to a lake near their farm in Brazil, and they attached a rope to a rudder on a boat and then body surfed on the water. According to Brizzy, he asked the pair whether this was how they escaped, and they told him it was. Wait, what? I thought there was the raft and they paddled and all that stuff. Right. So as it just so happens, there was a passenger ferry in the area that evening, and it had its last run after midnight, just after midnight, on the night of the escape. And something I didn't mention earlier, maybe on purpose, was that when investigators conducted their preliminary searches and checks in the prison, they discovered that there was 120 foot of electrical wire missing from the dock. So the theory here is that maybe, uh, using some of the stuff they made, they attached this wire to a rudder on a boat, this particular ferry, and they were dragged away from Alcatraz. And then once they got to a certain point, maybe they did some paddling or whatever, and they met up with another boat that was being driven by someone from the outside. And don't forget, there had been a witness that reported some interesting boat sighting that night, right? Well, that witness was Officer Robert Chechi, who was having a cigarette at a yacht club overlooking the bay after his shift in Alcatraz. And he looked out over the water just after midnight and saw a white boat with no fishing rods and no sails 
just out there in the water pretty still for about 30 minutes until all of a sudden it started moving toward the Golden Gate Bridge. Investigators now believe that Brizzy, with his criminal background in shipping narcotics, maybe he was the guy that helped them get across the San Francisco Bay. But at the time of the initial investigation, the FBI discounted Officer Chechi's statement. You know why? Because they firmly believed that the trio never made it to the shore and that they drowned in the water. Well, maybe that's because that's what they wanted to believe. Right, so it's quite possible that the evidence needed to solve this case was actually in front of the investigators the whole time, and they just couldn't see it because it didn't fit with what they were looking for. And the U.S. Marshals continue searching for the trio, and this case will only be closed if the suspects are arrested, the Marshals have proof of death, or they reach a natural age of 99. But the Marshals aren't the only ones looking in to close the case. Like I said earlier, you have these nephews and family of these men who seem to have mysteriously vanished, and they're looking for closure too. The question is, are they going to get it? Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.